Hi, I am Kyle Gould, and I am very pleased to have the opportunity today to sit across from two people who are putting up a show. And as this podcast will doubtlessly get better with regards to intros down the road, I don't have much of one to start with. But that isn't to say that these two people don't have many wonderful things to do to introduce themselves. So why don't I turn it over to Ed over here to help us understand a little bit more about what's going on and what we're here for today. Thank you, Kyle. So good to be part of this first ever effort for you. And uh, I wish you much luck as uh, time goes on. I'm with Dudney Players. Uh, I've been a producer. I've been a director. Probably lean into the technical side of things, but treasure on the board. So we need cash flow and I like to get good shows on the schedule. We were looking for something for the spring part of the show. We've been trying to get noises off on the stage for a while, but there is no facility here that will work in a practical sense. So Katie brought us Macbeth about four seasons ago, and it was fantastic. The much bloody Macbeth. That was a delightful show. And I said, what else have we got for Shakespeare? And Katie said, how about the Twelfth Night? Now, being a total non-Shakespeare expert, I, I said, do tell. And when was this conversation? We were at one of my favorite coffee shops, 94 Take the Cake, and I believe this happened October at the very latest. Yeah. So September, October of 2022. 2022, mm. yeah. Just to get a picture of what the turnaround time is for how you plan your season, what you're doing for shows, and what you're thinking about. So it's October, September of 2022, when you have coffee and you sit down yeah. next to... I'm Katie Fornell, and I'm the director of The Twelfth Night, um, because the Dutney players have always been very, very kind to me and very trusting of my uh, wacky ideas. And I remember approaching Ed and saying, I have an idea for the Scottish play that's wild. And I was like, are you, are you willing to do it? And Ed said, well, let me talk to the board. And they approved it uh, without much pushback at all. And we put on this very crazy, I used a, a form of theater called theater of cruelty, where the short Cliff Notes version of what that means is basically the audience is in as much danger as the actors of being part of the show, being scared, things are happening that the audience doesn't expect. It's a basically a full surround sound version of theater. And so we had actors just appearing in the audience out of nowhere. We had loud banging sounds, things just set up to scare the audience. Because I really believe that uh, Shakespeare intended that play to be a horror. And that was my goal was to make it a horror. And then with the Twelfth Night, I said, well, let's, let's do the same idea and look at what probably Shakespeare intended, which was to make a comedy, a really ridiculous comedy that people laughed all the way through. So that's exactly what we're trying to do here with Twelfth Night is make a really rambunctious, crazy characters comedy that we're hoping people are, you know, cry laughing the whole way through the whole show. So what was the pitch? Ed said, well, what if what if we tried Shakespeare again? Because as he mentioned, we were trying to do Noises Off. It's a That's a very big set to build. And we realized, oh, we're not going to have a space that mm -hmm. can manage that in Oktoks. So he said, well, Shakespeare's, you know, pr pretty cheap. <laughs> the rights come really easy for that's Shakespeare shows. And so it was like, well, that's just something so that we're doing something. So the pitch was basically Ed knew that he wanted me to direct a show this spring and said, what do you want to do? What Shakespeare would you do? And that's where um, the pitch kind of came from. And the rest of it all actually kind of fell into place after the script had been approved and we knew that we were going to do it because I actually had to go back and reread the script a couple of times. I was like, I know I love this show, but I can't remember why. And so I had to read it a few times to really find out what I was going to do with it. So this is your second time directing for Dudney? Yeah. And the first time with Shakespeare as well. It's kind of funny. I don't think of myself necessarily as a Shakespeare director, but uh, Dutney seems to think of me as such. So <laughs> I keep uh, coming back and directing Shakespeare with them. And I got to say, the the kind of the most amazing thing about Shakespeare is you learn something every time, every time you touch one of his scripts. So that's been kind of what I'm getting to do with uh, exploring with Dutney. One of the reasons I love working with Dutney is it really allows me to try the big stuff. I've done a lot of small touring kids shows where you're like two boxes and three actors max and that way we can put it in the back of somebody's car and move it around. So it's really exciting to be able to do shows with Dutney where it's like, no, this is concrete. We've 12 actors in the 12th night that <laughs> we kind of forced it into that number of actors, but we have 12 actors. 
And uh, that's what I love about working with Dutney is, and doing community theater in general is, uh, as a director, you're able to really do the big stuff because you don't have to worry about paying everybody on the other side of it. <laughs> that is very true. Everyone's getting paid. It's just in, not in currency. Yeah, it's it's an experience. So yes. that's why we're able to do the complicated shows too, because everybody's like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to come and try and learning. Um, how to do this. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of our actors have never touched Shakespeare before in their lives. So it's really exciting. So to work with them. that leads into the follow up there with regards to the challenges. But I want to come back to this coffee shop meeting. Yes, that happened in October, or September, because it sounds like the two of you started out talking about noises off and then segued real quick into Shakespeare, something else. And is that when you pitched Twelfth Night? Yeah, um, I did you pitch Twelfth Night? straight up as it was? Or was there any other element in that coffee shop meeting that led you to say, I want to do a little bit differently here? I want to do something interesting with Twelfth Night? Or was it just, I remember Twelfth Night being so wonderful? Yeah, and I think it is the latter that I just remembered how much I enjoyed Twelfth Night. I actually studied it in sixth grade. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that's where I was remembering it from and just loved it. And I think I actually pitched it very differently in that conversation of what we actually ended up with. Because oh, I said, we should just do it straight Shakespeare. <laughs> we should go 100% into the, co- like have the costumes just be Shakespearean costumes, not put any twist on that. And I think I even said, and this will come up probably as we keep talking about who our cast is, but I said, we got to cast everybody as the genders they are because the show won't make sense if we don't, (laughs) which is interesting after reading it a few times. Absolutely. We've not done that. (laughs) So Ed then took that. And what did you do with that after that conversation? Well, basically from a practical perspective, took it to the board and said, um, we are looking at Shakespeare. Of course, the board said, what happened to uh, Noises Off? And I, I guess it does seem... Well, here we are pitching a show in October. No, we were full on for uh, Noises Off and absolutely beating the trees, had a realtor looking for space. We were all in for Noises Off, uh, had the scripts purchased for it, probably had the rights uh, established for it and everything, which is a bit of a stretch if you think that when you're applying for rights, you need to tell them the theater where you're going to be doing it at. Right. So um, we pitched the Rory Performing Arts Center as the location and we went and then realized this is not going to go. So we knew we wanted Katie and uh, board certainly understood the success that we had had with Macbeth. And if I might add a couple of interesting things with Macbeth, we threw five speakers under the seating in the theater. Yeah, just to shock people from yeah. underneath. They wouldn't know they're sitting on a speaker until the owl cries. Yeah, or the thunder claps. And yeah. uh, we tried to have theatrical fog, and I had built two fog chillers, and it, it was going to be wonderful, except it sets off the fire alarms and the <laughs> fire trucks come, and we had to pull that. Uh, but anyways, back to uh, Twelfth Night. We knew it was a comedy. I'm less, I'm going to use the term, into Shakespeare, kind of from a, you know, non-theater background. Uh, I mean, I tolerated any Shakespeare I did in English and certainly was never in drama in high school. So for some of this wisdom, I lean on my wife, who is from England, grew up in England and probably wrote O-levels on Shakespeare. So uh, she knew more about it than than uh, I did. But again, 100%, the board was 100% behind whatever Katie and her vision would be for it. And as we say it, we kind of went into it fairly straight because the Viola Cesario twist makes it kind of tough. We had four female actors in Macbeth doing the various male roles because other than Witches and Lady M., there's I think it's also important yeah. you were also playing a witch so we, we were witch. we were switching genders yeah. in uh, <laughs> yeah. Macbeth all over yeah. the place yeah. which to me that didn't make any difference no. to that story at all no. but my concern yeah when we were approaching Twelfth Night and I was kind of just like trying to remember how it went is I'm like well this would be confusing if we were switching genders we'd have to actually change the genders of everybody and then then we did we did. That's <laughs> and, really funny. And, and again, without taking away from anybody that showed up to auditions, I really loved the line in your director's comments for your show. Um, we had such a breadth of talent, a wealth of talent uh, from female actors show up at auditions. And what could we do but cast them? And yep. and, and your your casting choices were brilliant as well. Oh, thank and, you. And I look at ours and, and I look at our cast and go, 
What if we'd said, we're going to play this straight, we're going to keep three of you seven delightful, talented, eager ladies, and we're going to go and beat the trees to get seven more men or six more men, whatever it was that we needed. I just can't imagine leaving that kind of talent on the table. So where we went was with the talent. Definitely followed the enthusiasm of our female actors and also really... um getting to challenge both our female and our male actors a lot because lots of them have never done something like this before. So basically, to make sure everybody's on the same page here, what we've done is most of our men are playing women in the show. So our Olivia is played by a man, Mariah is played by a man, as is Viola, who then is pretending to be a man. So it's a young man playing a woman who's playing a man. And then all of our male characters, with the exception of the fool and a couple of the bit parts, are played by women. You guys um, keep rushing to this part. I'm trying to get to like, you're still trying to do noises <laughs> off. Yeah. And you're like, talk about Macbeth. And I know. I'm like, so Ed, keeps, Ed keeps encouraging Take, me to get over here. Go to the... <laughs> You go, know, go to talk the about board, the meeting. Go, you go to, the, to the meeting and you make the decision. And I do want to say, I didn't realize this was a thing very, very early on because I most of my shows have been with Morpheus Theater. Mm-hmm. They always have the pump house. But I've recently come to realize they're talking with a lot of other community theater companies and whatnot that before you do anything, you secure the space. The space is so important. Yes. And it really does hearken here that if you're listening to this and you're thinking about doing a show, you find that space first. The space, the time, you book that, you get that, then you start putting everything else together. The space comes first. And we did Shakespeare in Love several years ago, and that is literally one of the main underlying sub-themes of that movie is the space because they get closed down for where they were and they'd already done all the acting and everybody had already been cast. And they're like, how do we even have a show? We're paying people for nothing. And these are professionals. So it's funny here 600 years later, first. we're still on the same problems. <laughs> Absolutely. So where's the space? The space is Rotary Performing Arts Center. It's uh, owned by the town. It's a former United Church building. In fact, if I can give it a little pitch, it's the location of the first United Church congregation in Canada when the Methodist Church, Congregational Church, Presbyterian Church merged to become this United Church of Canada. The first congregation that switched over to the United Church colors was here in Okotoks. The congregation grew out of the building from a capacity size, and it seats about 150. And the building was for sale, for destruction, for whatever would happen. A building that age does come with some technical issues, structural issues, and, mm-hmm. and so on. And a church usually can't afford those kinds of things. Anyways, um, a group of volunteers in town saw the vision of that as a performing arts facility, not necessarily acting, but uh, music, because the acoustics in there are very good. The pew seating at the time wasn't the most comfortable. (laughs) It kept you awake during church services. Let's go with that. And the idea was raise some money, do some concerts, do some fundraisers, get some money to convert it into a place that would function for theater. To get from the basement up to you know, what could have been considered backstage, the entrance to where the preacher would have walked on through the choir out to to his pulpit, you actually had to go outside. And, you know, that little fancy entrance we have now with a, a stairway that was internal, that was added on during one of the renovations. So we've been doing shows there since I think 2005, we did The Importance of Being Earnest there. And I think that was our first show there. And we do have to make sure that we have um, a facility secured for the types of shows we're doing. We're booked out through till 2025 in terms of having dates to do shows. And um, one of the challenges, again, I don't know if the, the city groups face those kind of challenges. It's now we have to find a play to do. Oh, we have to find a director to do yep. something. And uh, when we have directors of the caliber of Katie, you make sure you groom them and treat them nicely so that they come back and do something with you again. I totally pictured Ed with a pet brush there. Yeah, the, getting the, some the, grooming the, done. You think he's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Brushes my hair during rehearsals. That's great. That's great. If I can say with the RPAC, actually, because it is kind of in Oak Tokes, 
pretty much one of the only spaces unless we're doing something that's specialty that needs somewhere else. There isn't really another theater space at all to consider, which is what we ran into with Noises Off. We're like, oh, we can find something. I'm sure we can find something. Nope. Nope. There's actually only that option. And some struggles that come along with the RPAC, just thinking as the director and, and then also just as the company trying to move into it is it's not a very big stage. It is fairly small. There is no backstage that just does not exist. There's no dressing room. There's a little kitchenette area that can fit maybe two actors. <laughs> and we have 12. So Dutney's always been kind of pushing the envelope on what the RPAC stage can handle. And I think that's partly in the hope that we get a better one. <laughs> so do your 12 actors hang out on the sides? There is a tiny little triangle backstage space and then there's immediately stairs on the other side of it so the actors can enter the stage from the back but they can't hang out backstage waiting for their cues it's like you can come upstairs when it's time for you to go on and then we put up curtains and take up most of the lobby which is in the basement in that space for our actors to be able to be hidden before the show goes on and it is a lot of work for Dutney, I know, to set up all those curtains and everything to keep everybody in, which is one of the things with Shakespeare, even though our set is really simple and stuff like that. It's always something when you're saying, like, secure the space. It's like, yeah, sometimes you got to push what you can do in the space in order to make a show that's worthwhile, especially in the community theater scene for the community actors that they, they want to do something big and impressive, but we've got maybe eight feet of stage space. So you secured the space. Oh, yeah. You're good yeah. to go. You've picked your show. You've went to the board. You said, it's not going to be noises off. We're going to do Twelfth Night instead. And the board dropped their jaws and then picked them back up and said, okay, let's do it. You, you sold them on, on the show. You sold them on Katie because I don't think that was a hard sell. Not a hard sell. When was that? Almost immediately. I think it was the Almost next week after the meeting. Yeah. Yeah, immediately. I think we had been ordering scripts uh, during the run of uh, uh, Full Monty already because we we had the time frame, right? Mm -hmm. We knew we knew what our time slot was, so uh, yeah, there there was no issue with that. No issue of securing royalties uh, or rights. Um, you just buy your scripts and uh, pick a date for auditions and, we and go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went with um, No Fear Shakespeare because of the uh, English translation. In fact, that was one of our conversations. Do we want to go with Twelfth Night in English or do we want to do Twelfth Night in Shakespeare? And Katie decided to go with the, the original, go with the, the Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And we've worked really, really hard to bring that language alive. One of the things that we did for actors was um, went through um, Theatre Alberta to get a workshops on demand. And we had Nathan Schmidt from Rosebud Theatre come out to uh, give us a full afternoon seminar on Shakespeare in general and Twelfth Night in particular. It was fabulous. And I, I know I learned a lot and grew through that. I'm sure our cast did as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so when did that workshop happen? Must have been pretty March. late in the process. Though. It was actually. It was uh, the end of March. So we basically had finished blocking the play by the time we did the workshop. Okay. We had just blocked the play. We had done, I think, our stumble through. And then we went, okay, before you start really memorizing this, April here's how to do that. <laughs> wow. April 2nd, I believe, if, I, if that was a Saturday, yeah. Yeah. And so then you started putting together your production team. No, that was all already in place. So I meant uh, before oh, that, like we'd gotten the space, oh, we got approval, mm -hmm. we got everything going, you assemble your production team. Was that an easy process for you this time around? Or was there any difficulties in putting together your team for production? It was pretty easy. Uh, we almost came to the problem where we had too many set builders because I had a super easy set and a bunch of people wanting to be involved with that. Uh, I've worked with a woman named Cassandra Thorbjornsson, and she's an amazing prop master and art designer and stuff. So she was working on that. Meanwhile, we also have Bob the Builder, who has been working with Dutney for a few years, and he was ready to go and build stuff. And we were like, uh oh, <laughs> we, we have both of these people ready to build the set at the same time, but they ended up working beautifully. Um, we also got Ben Cedars. The Cedars family has been involved with the Dutney players since 2000. For years, <laughs> for a very long time, they've all been involved. And uh, Ben and I actually were the same team directing stage managing team from the Scottish play from Macbeth. And I kept telling him, I was like, this is easy. This one's easy. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. He's like, yeah, yeah it's not. You're <laughs> a liar. So I have Ben as our stage manager. And then, of course, Ed came on 
as producer and Trish Babkirk really has been enjoying the process of being our costumer. So we were able to grab these people fairly quickly. Oh, and Claire Hoyer is our makeup artist because we are obviously making men look like women and women look like men. So she's doing um, all of the makeup with a team and she's done the makeup for a few other Dutney shows. So I guess one thing that kind of made it really easy is part of the stuff that comes along with community theater is the community of it. And people just kind of fall into those roles. I don't think there was any question from Trish. She's like, okay, so what do I need to plan for costumes? It wasn't, am I hired? It's what am I doing this time? That's nice. Yeah. It was really smooth actually getting everybody in place for the production team. So everybody was there for the very first production meeting. Yep. Absolutely. It was the term I would use is the usual suspects. Excellent. Um, Yeah. Of course, those listening might not know who your usual suspects Mm -hmm. are. So thank you very much for sharing some of the details about who they are. So they're all gathered and you you assembled and you tell them what you're doing. Do you already know you're gender flipping it at this point or not? Did we know at that time? I think the first production meeting, we didn't know we were Mm -hmm. gender flipping it yet. Uh, I think I was starting to come to terms with the idea that we might have to. And that's just because the nature of theater, and I think this is all the way across the board up to professional theater, is there are far more well-trained, ready-to-work young women in the industry than young men. And it's it's too bad because I wish that it was uh, even across the board with ev- all genders represented equally, but young women are represented more often than not at auditions. And the sad part of that is, the roles don't show that uh, no. if you just cast every show by the gender you have. And so I was kind of starting to realize that we were probably going to have to do that. But yeah. I was still trying to, in my head, kind of make both options work. I was like, okay, maybe if we had to this character, we could make a woman and this character, we could make a woman. But I hadn't completely got myself on board with the idea that we were flipping the entire cast at that point. We were using uh, Calendly as a software for people to book their auditions. And that's, I think, when reality started to bite, when we realized how many female auditioners uh, were registered. I mean, it's Viola. She's one of the greatest Shakespeare women written, so I can understand why every woman wanted wanted a piece of her. It's like Hamlet or Macbeth. You're going to get a certain pedigree of people coming out because that is a character. Absolutely. That's the one they want. And then we had pretty much exactly enough men to do the job. I think if I took on a couple of the bit parts... And then the male auditioners started to drop off. Oh, sorry, have to cancel. Oh, no, realize I don't have the time. Oh, something came up. Oop, oop, oop. And they just fell by the legions. And uh, to supplement what Katie was saying about um, how many women show up to auditions, uh, one of my tasks from the board several years back was find plays with ladies in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting on the ferry going over to Vancouver Island, reading Samuel French's catalog. Remember the days of paper catalogs? Mm-hmm. Reading through this catalog, finding plays that had uh, more Fs than or than, than Ms. And um, one of the ones that came out of that was uh, Steel Magnolias. And mm-hmm. that was a brilliant show that went over really well. But that that arose from the specific task of find plays that have more women than men in them. And crazily enough, I don't know what other community theater experiences are, but many of the plays are written for nine men and two women. Yeah. Uh, How do you cast that in modern environment? You flip the entire thing. Yeah. We were better served in many ways by what happened at auditions because we're at the point now where I can't see anybody else other than this cast. And I always, I always look at even actors turning down roles or needing to leave for personal reasons, and then you have to fill them in with somebody else. I always look at that as more a blessing than a curse, because by the time you get to show, it's like, how did we ever think we could do it the other way? And, right. um, and I, I really feel like that's true of this play is how did I ever, it's funny thinking back to, it's like, oh, when did I, when did I finally make that call that we were going to flip all the gender roles as much as we could? And I'm so glad that I did. And it serves the show so much better. And it's funny thinking back to when I was actually starkly being like, no, we're, we're not flipping the genders because that was, that would have been the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. Halfway through the first night of auditions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how that's many auditioners did you have? How many are in the cast? 
That, that is the um, number of people that came out to audition? The number of people came out to audition is the wow. number of people I needed. And then we actually did have a few drop after yeah. the fact. So we did uh, call around to get a couple more actors. Um, the thing that is kind of interesting is I was thinking about it and I think we'd had two auditions. And then the third one came in and that actor I started telling, by the way, we're switching gender roles because I realized at that point, I was like, you know what? This is what we're doing. We're going with it this way. And so two of our actors had no idea that we were planning on flipping the gender roles. And they're like, I would like to audition for this gentleman. And I'm like, oh boy, (laughs) well, too bad for you. Exactly. So when you did the initial auditions, did that come up to people? Did you ask them about their comfort playing opposite sex? I did. And eventually, yeah. <laughs> once yeah, once we started, uh, there was there was, like I said, two auditions that didn't know. And interestingly, the one audition he was gonna he was always gonna end up playing the part that he ended up in because he's so funny in it. He plays a number of different characters. He plays the captain, the holy man, and the guard. And we just left him as the same gender. So it didn't really affect him much that we'd done that. But then there was one of our actresses that I had to call and be like, so you play a man, but I know her quite well. And I knew that she'd be 100% on board for the idea. During auditions, I did have one conversation with one actor that I did have a little bit of concern that he was not going to be interested in having to wear a dress and wearing men, uh, women's clothing. And he just is very, very comfortable with who he is as a person and who he presents as. But it's funny saying that now because he is still in our cast. He's playing, well, he's playing Viola. (laughs) He got the lead. And he has been so easy to work with in many ways in some scheduling things because he's a very talented young man. So he's kind of hard to sometimes keep in rehearsal because this is community theater. But he's he's just doing amazing things with her and he's he's finding her body. Who is this person? So Leo Kulegan. (laughs) Is his name, and I've I've never worked with him before. This is my first time He's getting new up to Dudney too. Oh, that's wonderful. Yep. His mum's friend is in the show and has been in one of our other shows before. So I think that's how he came to us. His mum has seen our shows before. Yeah, and he's really very seriously. He's our youngest in the cast as well, and he's very seriously pursuing his acting career, uh, which is why sometimes on Sundays he's like, "I have auditions. Goodbye, (laughs) goodbye." (laughs) Um, But he's uh, he's so much fun, and he brings so much energy to it. He is one of our actors who's never touched Shakespeare before, so it is really amazing to watch him learn and grow and fall into it. He's definitely one of those actors who suffered from bad high school teachings of Shakespeare and learning it through language arts and being like, oh, this is so boring. Why do we even care? And, well, let's just touch you know, on that for a second. Yeah. Because Shakespeare's meant to be performed, Absolutely. not studied. Not read. Absolutely. And high schools are definitely changing their perspective on that because it seems like because my eldest is in grade 10, they're doing Romeo and Juliet and the entire thing is being performed scene by scene by the class while they're reading it. And so they get a better feeling for what it is. And it's not just sitting alone as homework, read the next three scenes. That's not happening because they know no one is going to learn it and it's just going to be a struggle. Fabulous. Good to hear that. So that's great that they've finally made these changes Absolutely. after it's not fine. having made those changes, <laughs> even though people were talking about it 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. So nonetheless. One of the interesting exercises Katie did at the very beginning, everybody had a little different assignment about Shakespeare. Mine was what was theater etiquette like in Shakespeare's time? What were the, the role of males in Shakespeare's play? What were the role of females in Shakespeare's play? What I don't know where you came up with the questions, but they were fabulous. And They were each tailored actually to the character. The reason you got theater etiquette is because you're a producer, so he <laughs> would have had to deal with the theater etiquette. Viola was looking up the roles of women and and Orsino and Olivia were both looking at males or females clothing, uh, respectively. Our Antonio was looking up the treatment and role of uh, homosexual men in the time period and how that was treated. Was it a crime? Was it allowed? Was, was it just not spoken about? Because Antonio can very, very easily be played as a gay man to the point that I 100% believe, I know there's some speculation on it, but I 100% believe that was Shakespeare's intention was for that character to be gay. Mm -hmm. And various other ones, um, what does it mean to be a knight? What is some of the social standings of people at the time? What was the role of the fool? 
those kinds of questions and they were all all went and did a little bit of homework on them to get to know their character a little bit more. That's great. Did you grade them afterwards? And No. <laughs> they actually were kind of mad at me because they all showed up and I was like, okay, give me one tidbit from the work that you did. And they're like, oh, what the? <laughs> Three pages. Yeah, I did so much work. And I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> I, just, I just need one. It was for you. <laughs> This was for you. And, That's and great. one of the things that came out of that is Shakespeare is meant to be performed, not read. And from that wealth of knowledge that the cast brought forward, I came up with a little bit of a marketing plan, I guess you might say, where I've been publishing Shakespeare tidbits, uh, two of them every week in the local newspaper, The Western Wheel. And I've taken little different things about Shakespeare. And of course, one of them was supposed to be read or performed, not read. And what was theater etiquette in uh, Shakespeare's time and myths and facts of, uh, of Shakespeare. I hope folks have been seeing that and uh, warming to, uh, to Shakespeare. They're really fun to read. I've yeah. been reading them. You've been reading them? Yes, Thank you, Katie. That's wonderful. She hasn't yelled at me yet, so I think I've been getting them. Great. And what a good use of other people's homework, too, to Absolutely. build that together. Yeah, yeah you stole yeah. all their homework. It was pretty great, actually. It's called research, not plagiarism. Right. So there's gender bent and there's gender swapped. And those things are different. Yes. And we've, unfortunately, in Calgary, everybody just kind of just throws whatever word they think works there in the moment for yes. it. But what would you say... Twelfth Night is going to be. It is a... Before we get into that, please enlighten the dummy producer as to the Don't subtleties. worry, I was going to ask the same question, Ed. Oh, you're good. okay. Okay. <laughs> Just because as you're saying, it's like people throw whatever one fits their mood at the time. Yeah, they really do. So gender bent means that we are keeping the original script and we are putting different gendered people in the script. That's gender bent. Gender flipped is you have gone and you have taken all of the time and effort to change the gender of each of the characters in the script for each of the characters in the, in the script, where you've taken Duke Orsino becomes Duchess Orsino. There are definitely different ways of seeing how things fall out depending on which way you you change the script or if you ch if you don't change the script at all and you just change the actors. So those are the two primary ways of doing it. So I would say we would fall much closer to the gender bent. We do have two characters that are played by the gender as they were written. Our fool is in the script written as a man and a man is playing the fool. Also, as I have mentioned before, the guard, the priest and the uh, the servant and the captain. Yes, he plays just he just pops in now and then. Um, he is also a man and his characters are all male. But everybody else, Count Orsino, played by a woman, but is still Count Orsino. Uh, Viola, still a woman dressing as a man, but played by a young man, and so on and so forth throughout the entire cast. The reason uh, I chose not to do that with The Fool, the reason we decided not to gender bend The Fool was because The Fool's the only character who consistently throughout the show is able to keep up with what's going on, with who's playing what, what each character is hiding, and what they actually are meaning to do and what they're actually doing and how those misinterpretations are coming through. I think the fool is only hoodwinked one time and comes around to the fact that he's talking to the wrong person pretty quickly. And that was why we decided this character, unlike all the other characters, not that I mean gender identity is confusing in any way, but he's not confused. Mm. But everybody else in the show is confused by something. They they aren't understanding something. So the reason for the fool being played by a man is because that character is kind of the audience's eye in and he's with the audience. He's like, well, you, you know what's going on. And because he's like that, we decided to keep him as a man and then have everybody else flipped as their not understanding or not seeing the problem that they're creating mm -hmm. or not seeing how what they're saying is wrong and having to be corrected most of the time by the fools. Yeah, the fool kind of could almost be considered to be a narrator. Mm -hmm. The fool pretty much does that in our case. It's very interesting to note that it is very seldom in any of Shakespeare's plays as well that the fool ends up in any sort of sexual relevant tension. Absolutely. Or 
you could almost say their their gender is irrelevant. And that's anyway. that's part of why, yeah, yeah, I was thinking that he was actually originally one of the characters when I was like, maybe I can gender uh, swap a few of them, right? Uh, the fool was the first on the list. It's it's like well, the fool can be anybody, yeah, exactly. The only one that you really can't, and you because you'd have to change everything, is the Merry Wives of Windsor. Because the yeah. lead in that is the fool from Henry Four, Part One and Part Two, and so because he's now the lead, he cannot be the fool and the lead. It's like the follow up to what happened with this fool and yeah. where could, did he go? Where did he go? <laughs> and the giant fat man lives on, as it were, as the fool turned into the protagonist. And how does that work? Yeah. So it's very interesting. But we continue on. So it seems like some of the things you're really excited about this show is this gender bent quality to it as you have cast women in traditionally male roles and not made any change to the script. Yeah. How are you seeing that play out? What are you looking for audiences to look for and see and delight in in the same way that you are during rehearsals? One thing that comes to mind is I was at one point trying to make a go of it as an actress. So I was the young 20-something actress who was being faced with all these really, really juicy, meaty male roles, and then the women who kind of just pop into the script and say a few funny things and leave. Especially young woman roles. Like, there's there's some really juicy older woman roles, but young woman roles just kind of hard to find, which is, I think, one of the things that I liked about Twelfth Night is it does have some really juicy roles for young women because the three main women could all be played as young women fairly easily. But what kind of excites me about it, and I'm, I'm going to point to our Sir Toby actually mostly on this, is these women are getting offered roles that for the most part, when they walk into an audition room, nobody's even like even even slightly considering them for, and they're not considering themselves for. Our Sir Toby was a phenomenal candidate for Viola, a very beautiful young woman who is a very like strong actress, but historically always cast as the princess, as the beautiful one. And so I caster is Sir Toby Belch, and his last name says all you need to know about that particular character. He's a large, boisterous man who's drunk all the time. He makes sex jokes, dick jokes, you name it. He's sitting there making all these jokes. He's at other people's expenses. He's kind of puppet mastering a lot of the things that are going on. He's chasing after young women, which is all stuff that Safia has had to play on the other side. And I'm so excited for her to get to play this character. Mm -hmm. And she's really excited to play this character because she's, you can just see her like really chewing into it. She's, she's like, I get to do this. I get to do all these like really gross and dirty things that normally she wouldn't even be considered for. And that's what I'm really excited for with this show. We also have our Sir Andrew as well is a beautiful young woman who's a dancer. And she's also Safia Elder and Kelly Kozak. And those two, it was so great because with, with Safia in particular, I had said to her, I'm like, are you up for this? Like, do you want to do this? Because Toby is really the lead of the show. He does have the highest line count, not the highest word count, but the highest line count. And I was like, do you want to do this? And she was like, I would love to try. And then in the read through, seeing her and Kelly bounce off of each other, it was great because what we were achieving between the two of them was the female camaraderie, but being flipped on its head and turned into these two gross, rude men. Yes. And it was so amazing to watch. So that's kind of the thing that I want people to see. Also, our Count Orsino this woman, Anne-Marie Cotton, she was reading it and she's like, I hate him. I hate him. And I was like, good, use it because you are a woman getting to say these things. And Orsino has a whole speech about how men should be older than the woman they marry because older women are useless. And Anne-Marie's like, I'm 50. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Shakespeare. So uh, she's really getting to use that. That's kind of the fun of Count Orsino is that she's getting to say things that she does not believe and get to kind of play him up as I know I'm a, uh, a woman talking about a man who's saying things that I don't believe and saying things as I don't believe them. So she plays him as very snobby. <laughs> 
I guess is the uh, word that's coming to mind for him right now. Oblivious, I think sometimes yeah. Can, yeah, doesn't know how rude he's being. Doesn't yeah. know how supercilious he's being. Uh, what I would add to it is the the girls have been bringing it. They have been larger than life. You know, you think about the typical Toby Belch, uh, as Katie said, would be some large man who's playing some pompous kind of character. Safia might be 110 pounds soaking wet. Very wet, very wet. But as the challenges you had for your show with Jeanette playing the fool, the jester in, in the play very masculine mannerisms to um, authenticate the role. And, and I think Safia and, and, and Kelly, I mean, Kelly playing Andrew, Andrew is just a moron. And he, he thinks he's being normal, uh, but he's just out of it. And these girls are, are playing those so well. My wife has uh, plays the Fabian character, and she keeps saying, now what would a man do on these roles? And I said, I don't I have to watch you to coach you in how it would be, but there are differences. Mm -hmm. After rehearsal, I'll tell them, well, don't mince across the stage quite like that. And yeah, so it, it's been an interesting experience and, and I really think everybody has been bringing it. Yeah. The other side of this is we also have a bunch of men playing oh, yeah. women. And my gentleman who's playing Mariah, he was going hard. You could tell he wanted Count Orsino. And then I was like, okay, by the way, uh, you're going to be Mariah. And he's done this show. This will be his third time doing the show. He's played Sebastian. And he has also played Sir Andrew Aguchi. And Russell Thomas is his name. And he's coming back to theater for the first time in quite a while. And I went, okay, but in a dress. And all of our gentlemen are doing a phenomenal job considering all three of them have never done drag or considered drag. They've never considered wearing a dress. It's just their personal choices have been pants. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, okay, dresses. And we've actually had to tell our Olivia a couple times, we're like, you can't, you can't sit like that. You can't do that. <laughs> it's going to be upsetting for everybody if you do it. So he's kind of learning this. And all three of them, I'm really impressed with from, I think they were thrown more than the women. Because I think male roles being offered to women kind of comes more often because like we explained, there's so many of them, but female roles being offered to men, even though in Shakespeare's time, it's what would have happened is kind of more surprising nowadays. And so these three guys are just like really, really digging in to the commitment level, considering all three of them 100% expected when they came and auditioned that they were going to be playing men. They're like, oh, no question. I got a part. It's going to be a big one because I came to the audition. And they're looking for men. Yeah. And they're like, okay, so you're not playing men. You're playing all three of our female roles. You've got dresses and just like navigating sometimes the choreography of the dress and stuff like that. I know I had my Olivia did mention we put him in a rehearsal skirt once so he could see what it felt like. And he said, yeah, it is something that I have to come with to terms with is that I'm the only one here wearing a skirt right now. Everybody yep. else on stage is in pants and there's me in a big poofy skirt. Yep. And he's like, okay, I can do this. But he said it was just a little bit of a wake up call, a reminder. It's like, you're going to look like a woman in this show. And all three of them are like, yep, all right. Good. Let's go. Getting those uh, skirts was uh, a bit of a challenge. We do have a formidable costume warehouse, a costume inventory, but not so much in the way of crinolines and, and hoop skirts. I think all the crinolines and hoop skirts in Calgary right now are being used by your show. <laughs> yes. They were all used by my show. Yeah. Every single one of them. Yeoman of the Guard has uh, bunches of them. 19. 19. <laughs> Holy cow. 19 uh, hoop skirts yeah. in use from uh, my show. But prior to that, as they loaded out, we loaded in Cinderella was also going up and Untold Stories had to use probably 14 wow. hoop skirts. And so every single hoop skirt in Calgary was used and then they still had to go and get 10 more hoop skirts. Wow. Not a really big cost, honestly, mm -hmm. to have these things. Mm -hmm. So it's good that Calgary has more hoop skirts just in general because more productions are going to be using them, I don't doubt, going forward and they don't take up too much space in storage. But nonetheless, yeah. I can only imagine. But that does lead me to the question about makeup yes. and how much time have your three men and, and also your women spent in makeup YouTube t tutorials, talking to your makeup and hair people in regards to what this is going to require of them because beauty makeup for men on stage 
is very different from your traditional male makeup. Absolutely. And it seems like, I would imagine, that the, uh, the, the theater you're in, the, lim- the short, small space that it is for 150, I would imagine most men are not putting on much makeup much at, at all. all. Yeah. Very often not. And now, here it is. Foundation, highlight, low light, blush, eyeliner, rouge. Probably already doing eyebrow shadows since so many do already, but... What's that look like? Our makeup artist, Claire, she has came and taught all the women. Okay. <laughs> so she she did a workshop with all the women on how to do drag king makeup. I actually have as well. My um, I will be playing Sir Toby on the 26th production because Safia has been super successful at the One Act Play Festival and she's been winning everything. So I'm like, well, can't uh, stop you from going and doing that. So yeah, She's off at Provincials. Yes, so she's at Provincials. So I'm going to be playing Sir Toby on the 26th of May. So I took the class as well for the Drag King makeup. And we basically learned all about the highlight and low light the idea being that most of the women knew how to do makeup. So it was just more of showing us where to put it. Mm-hmm. And then Claire's plan, she also taught two other makeup artists. So and really only our two men. Brad, who's playing Olivia, and Russell, who's playing Mariah, are really the only two that are going to be in full drag. We're going to leave Leo just with some foundation and let his face do most of the work because he is a woman playing a man. Right. And the only time that he appears as a woman is he's just been pulled out of the ocean. So we're going to not do makeup on him as much more of just the... Isn't there the big wedding revelation at the end? You're not there getting There is, him but all... he never changes clothes. Oh, okay. Um, and even in the script, they do talk quite a few times. Sebastian is such a problematic masculine character because he says, I know you're my sister, but if you were dressed in women's clothes, I hug you. <laughs> He says that like three times. Yep. It's like, Sebastian, you need to chill. Which our actress, uh, Alicia, playing Sebastian, is having a lot of fun with him and his toxic masculinity, as we're saying that he has. So Leo is not getting so much makeup done, more of just the basics so that he's not shiny. Russell and Brad are getting full drag queen makeup. And then the women, for the most part, are taking care of their own makeup. And Claire and the other makeup artists will come around. and Those two guys should definitely learn how to do it themselves. Because yeah. it is a skill to have and know how to do. Absolutely. I highly recommend, if they're listening to this at all before that, um, we'll teach you better how to be, to put, apply makeup and otherwise when you're just being a general dude. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Leo, uh, I guess you might say as well, is ble- uh, our viola is blessed with uh, very good natural coloring, you know, uh, very olive skinned and black, black hair as a young man. And he, uh, uh, you know, he's got the eyebrows and and eyelashes. (laughs) He's hot. (laughs) So I just want to finish up with, tell me what you want audiences to walk away from having seen this show. What should they be thinking about? Yeah. What do you want them to remember down the road? And those are different things. Mm -hmm. What do you want them to catch? It's kind of interesting because we haven't even talked about this part of it yet, is what I want the audience to walk away with the most is, man, that was funny. That's hysterical. I feel like when people approach coming to see Shakespeare, I'm sure many people who've studied Shakespeare completely know that his comedies are, are just that. They're rambunctious, crazy comedies. But many people, when they're coming to watch Shakespeare, they're like, oh, we're going to watch Shakespeare at the theater and it's going to be to be or not to be. That's not what Twelfth Night is. Twelfth Night is dick jokes, fart jokes, cross-dressing jokes. You name it, it's in this show. There's jokes about religion. And then there's also just crazy. There's a whole fight scene that's designed to be a bad fight scene. And you're just watching two people who can't fight each other, try and have a sword fight. And it's got physical comedy in it. It's just a rambunctious, goofy comedy. The same as Noises Off, honestly, because that's what we wanted to do was Noises Off. And this show is honestly just as rowdy and funny as Noises Off is. And I hope that the audience walks away with that. And that's what I tried to treat this show as and tell our actors they could do. When we say we have women playing men and men playing women, it's far closer to the pantomime style of it than the seriously a woman playing a man. It's a woman definitely pretending to be a man. And that's 
the comedy of it in many ways is the fact that everybody is over the top, overly dramatized. When they're yet wearing yellow stockings, they're showing off their legs like crazy because it's all about the calves. And I really, really want the audience to walk away and remember what a riot this show is and how much fun they had. And to kind of experience the Shakespeare comedy as exactly that, a comedy, to just be able to remember that, oh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare is very funny. Lovely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think my takeaway, I'm hoping for people to be able to take, take away is that Shakespeare is more accessible than they ever thought it would be. Because again, on that adage of Shakespeare is meant to be performed or to be seen rather than to be read, what have we read in high school? Macbeth, Lear, Othello, Hamlet, Rodeo, uh, Ro Rodeo and Juliet, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. I'd like um, to see Rodeo and Juliet. Oh, oh it's though. brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. Uh, it's a country and Western musical based on Hatfields and McCoys. I tell you, it's, it's, it's great. And uh, I mean, I've been trying in my little tidbits in the wheel as well to show, let people know, no, people came and cursed and swore and threw tomatoes and drank beer and, you know, jeered at the dick jokes. And I, I, I think, Folks don't think of comedy when they think of Shakespeare. And we've tried really, really hard to make it funny. If there's something that's funny, it's going to, you know, we're, we're trying to make it in your face. So yeah. bring that part aside. We, we want nothing subtle about this. Nothing subtle about the show. We want people to have fun. We want people to absolutely have fun and go away and go, hey, what else is out there by Shakespeare? Yeah, may I suggest Comedy of Errors after this one, because it's a lot the same, but also wild. Well, oh, yeah. guess what's on the schedule coming up? Henry V. Yes, in English. First. Wow. Is in our future. That's wonderful. So for me, I got my degree at the University of Calgary in English. with nice. a, With a focus in Shakespeare. Amazing. Uh, so... Though this is the very first episode of on staging, I'm also pretty, uh, pretty well, like, I know well situated <laughs> to this and pretty, pretty knowledgeable. I, I was very lucky to have Professor Emeritus Jim Black at the University of Calgary, who was a Shakespeare voracious reader and scholar, the type of guy that would be like, as you'll know, in scene two, of oh, gosh, three, I just expect you to on pick line that 160. Up. And then he would quote it. And you would be looking it up in your book when you pull it up and then it'd be there. And he quoted it word for word because he just had that sort of photographic memory. Wow. Twelfth Night for me has always been about when you fall in love with someone, gender is probably not even in the top five. Yeah. When you fall in lust with someone, gender is definitely in the top five. Mm -hmm. But when you genuinely fall in love with a human being, gender falls way down the list. And I really believe that Shakespeare is saying that as an undercurrent in all of this throughout Twelfth Night. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out with Thank the gender-bent version of it that's coming now. And when does it come out? We open May the 12th. Tickets available at www.dudneyplayers.com. Well, I can't wait to see it. I'm looking forward to being there.